and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and I'm joined by Ellie to talk about discovering new species of animals and refinding ones we thought were extinct. So Ellie, you report on this as a science writer, so tell me about it. <laughs> yes, so I'm very lucky because I get given quite a lot of these new species X has found a new species in Y and it's an insect or it's a lizard or even a mammal sometimes gets uh, found to be a new species and I love it and I get very cute press releases with lots of nice pictures of the animals in from different parts of the world and I think it's really fun because I think a lot of people don't think or don't realise that we are still discovering new species every year and I think that's really cool. More animals. Who could argue with that? Well... <laughs> Depends what the animal does, I suppose. And <laughs> you want only the useful ones. I guess they're all useful in some way, but I'm thinking back to the episode we were doing about invasive species, ah. and British farmers seemed keen to eradicate rabbits from the UK because we'd eradicated all the top predators because they were dangerous and scary. So the rabbits were proliferating and destroying crops, and they were seen as a bad thing. But that kind of suggests you're going to have to eliminate all animals. It's the wrong thing. We're going the wrong way with that. Yeah, very, very much the absolute opposite of what we're doing today. <laughs> exactly. So tell me about, you're saying these are like really cute and exciting things. Tell me about the cutest, most exciting thing you found recently, you found personally. Oh, I'd love to find something. That would be good, wouldn't it, if I went out? But they do say apparently you're most likely to discover um, new species in your back garden, which is, I think, where insects comes in because... There's loads of insects, like way more than mammals, way more than fish, way more than literally everything else. Uh, and we're still discovering more. There's still more out there. I think perhaps it's because people, I say this with all due respect to the entomology community, don't care about insects as much as they care about the cute and fluffy, especially the, the general public. Um, so perhaps the money isn't in entomology and finding new species of insect as it could be. But they have found the very exciting new beetle that has genitals shaped like a bottle opener. So I thought you'd enjoy that one. Okay, that doesn't sound like a thing <laughs> the public would immediately go, oh, isn't that nice and cute and interesting? <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite cute. I mean, as beetles go, it's like kind of black and green. It's shiny. And yeah, it's its back end looks like well, his genitals look like a bottle opener. And I think it's fun because uh, Carlsberg, the beer company, somehow got involved with this and <laughs> they like funded the research. And so they've named the new beetle uh, Longcovilus Carlsbergi, which I just think, great. Let's get everyone involved. Let's find more species, more beetles. And if you want to name them after beer companies, you know, there are worse things to name them after. Oh yes, I'm not sure how I feel about a scientific discovery being named after a commercial entity though. Mm. <laughs> I know that happens quite a lot, it's kind of what some science is, but it just makes me feel a little bit dirty. I got into science for the discovery, not for the commercial side of it. Yeah, but you still need the funding, right? If Carlsberg are yeah. going to bankroll, you know, your research, you're not going to be like, oh no, sorry, I can't, can't do it. I mean, at least it's Carlsberg and not someone like especially dodgy. Like some companies you'd think, oh, I don't want to be associated with them. But I think this is nice. <laughs> it does make me wonder, though, about how often new species are found. Do you have any stats around that? No, I'm waiting for the Natural History Museum to publish how many species they found this year. But that'll probably be a little bit 
longer await. But last year, just the Natural History Museum, like affiliated scientists, found 351 new species, which is almost one a day, which I think is pretty good going. That was in 2022. And that's only the researchers and scientists from the Natural History Museum. So potentially way more were found. <laughs> Given what you said about finding new species in your garden, I can just imagine like crawling around looking at different beetles and comparing them. Because I remember doing some of this in my paleontology modules in my undergrad for ammonites. And <laughs> you had to stare at a lot of ammonites. I mean, it's hard. That's the other thing. Like, you don't know what you don't know. So all... You don't possibly know every single species of beetle that has been described, let alone if you found a new one. So it is quite a complicated process. And I think we don't maybe give enough credit to them, like finding out that they are actually new. Like if no one knows, then do you hedge your bets and think, yeah, I'm going to name this species after Carlsberg? Or do you think, oh, actually, it's a bit too similar to that other one that guy found three years ago? Well, this is what I wonder, because when I was staring at these ammonites, these are fossilised sea creatures with the swirly shell. Yeah, basically squid. Yeah, and the best way to identify them was on, uh, they're called sutures, the tiny little lines on the outside of their shell that denote where a new chamber inside the shell starts. And they all have different patterns. And honestly, to me, there were some broad differences, but a lot of them just looked pretty much identical. So I felt like there must be some statistical way of figuring it out from just looking at them. I'm not sure so much about that sort of thing, but I guess you probably could still take DNA from the shells. But a lot of it is DNA based. So they will be looking at the gene sequences, the codes, and also the morphology, right? So experts will know that this looks like this, if you see what I mean. So species X has three white stripes, but species Y has seven white stripes. And what you do when you find a new species is that you have to do um, like a species description, like when you publish the paper, and they have like, basically, like when you go to Crufts and they're all like, oh, this Dalmatian is the perfect breed standard of this species, like breed of dog, they'll find like the perfect one of this new species or potentially even the only one. And that will be against what all other species are compared to, which I think is quite interesting. But they call it, I think they call it the holotype. Oh, it's testing me now. I do get the impression, so I spend a lot of time watching the birds in our back garden, and you do learn to sort of spot, oh, that, that's a jay that just flew over, because you spent a lot of time watching the birds, and you just know that's yeah, exactly. a jay, and you can't really explain why. That's what I think. Like, if someone's like, oh, what bird is that? I'm like, oh, it's a robin. Well, how do you know? I was like, well, how, how do you not know? <laughs> like... And because someone has told me before that it's a robin and someone else would have been like, oh, yeah, a robin. And you know that robins are small and brown and they have a red chest and they're likely to be found in your garden. So you sort of and then you build it up and you know that a blackbird isn't a robin because it looks totally different. But even a dunnock isn't a robin because it's slightly different. And then, yeah. And then the more you learn, the more the more you can tell them apart. But then, going back to what you are saying about DNA, I vaguely remember this from my undergrad degree, so I did a little bit of research, because it's been a very long time since I studied paleontology. I do remember them saying something about the molecular clock, so DNA mutations occur at a more or less constant rate, and a lot of them don't have much of an effect on the morphology, or what the animal looks like, yeah. the plant. But then some of them seem to have some widespread changes, like the mutation suddenly speeds up because it's beneficial. Yeah, I can see that happening. Oh, and then you can date it sort of based on where you see those changes in the genes. 
I think so. I think there's more. Yeah, um, so there's an article in Scientific American about 10 years ago about what makes us different is what it was called. And it was, I think, from the point of view of a biostatistician. Mm. They wrote some code to find which sections of human DNA had changed the most compared to chimpanzees. And it was this big calculation for doing something 10 years ago on a computing cluster. And it did identify like a list of which areas of the genome would change the most between the two species. And they could use that as a starting point to see what effect those gene expressions had and whether they, yeah, whether they actually made a difference to the animal's characteristics or not. But then they say we've got so much similar DNA between humans and apes, right? So if we have so much the same, then there must be clear differences that affect how you look. Otherwise, we'd all be covered in black fur. <laughs> Some of us still are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what got me thinking about it. If much of our DNA is so similar, and aren't we like, is it 80% similar to a cabbage? Yeah, it's something like that, isn't it? Like a ridiculous amount. Then there must be more subtlety to it than just the amount of DNA that's different. Yeah. It does seem to be certain regions that seem to code for interesting stuff. Yeah, I think that's probably true. What surprised me the most about the article was that a lot of what was referred to as junk DNA, something like over 98% of our DNA, it's not actually junk, it does do stuff. We just don't really know what in a lot of cases. Oh, I like that idea of being like, well, you've got it, it must do something. <laughs> we just haven't figured out what that is yet. <laughs> Yeah, so it sounds quite complicated to actually try and figure out for certain. Yeah. Has this section of DNA led to a meaningful change that would actually introduce a new species? I suppose also the new species thing, quite a lot of them are found in remote remote places now. So, like, people haven't been able to access them or no one wants to spend four weeks trekking through some remote jungle looking for new species on the off chance. So it's hard to know what you're looking for if no one's ever found it. But equally, if you've got a good record of the fact that seven species live on this island of lizard, let's say, and then you find one and it doesn't fit the, you know, profile of any of the other seven, then either it's a new species or it's a hybrid or it's a species that's, you know, come across on your boat and you didn't realise and it's got off in the wrong place. You know, that's how you get introduced species sometimes. So I think it is quite interesting. I was going to say, I feel like finding a new species of living animal is probably a bit easier because you can see it in action. But now I'm thinking maybe not because you have to go and see it to begin with. <laughs> yeah, you still have to find it first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whereas going to a, a local museum or whatever and say, can I sample that DNA and compare it to this DNA and do some analysis? A lot of them come out of museums because people will be like, oh, we had that thing in a drawer for 200 years and no one bothered with it and then we got a new director and they were doing a sort out and they found it and they were like wait hang on that's not what it's labeled as so yeah loads of stuff comes out of museums being like this is not what we had it labeled as or this was wrong or now we've got the money to uh, do some dna testing on it and have a look see what it is yeah i'd read a lot of finding new species actually more reclassifying things we already had that we thought were the same and are dead or extinct <laughs> but i think you could still find new species <laughs> of extinct stuff like there's that huge i think it's a pileosaur i hope i'm saying that right because i'll get lynched if not um that they just took out of the cliffs in the jurassic coast down in dorset and it's enormous and it's got like they've just got the head which is easily like almost two meters long and it's so, it's, I mean, the photos of it are incredible. Its teeth are like, it look, it's a proper sea monster. 
So yeah, they found, and they think that's a new species because it's got a crest like over the top of its skull bone, which none of the other ones that they know about that they've found have. So yeah, really cool. I think we've done this a little bit in a previous episode, figuring out how do they know what's going on in the fossil record? Because a lot of it's not very well preserved. So finding that one species is probably quite a rare thing. There might have been millions of those on the planet at one point. Well, the Jurassic Coast is obviously famous for dinosaurs and fossils because of like the rock formation in that area. And they're like trying to aim to find one of everything that was alive at that time. But obviously that's not always possible. No. But uh, we were talking about new species and you mentioned the one that is strangely linked to a particular beer because of a particular characteristic. <laughs> yes, talking about beetle genitals straight off the bat. Yeah, are there any other funky, maybe um, slightly less risque ones that are interesting? Um, there's some that get named after celebrities, which I think is really fun. So there's, um, I think it's a snake named after Harrison Ford. He's like a bit sad about this because apparently he's like obviously a really nice person and he's got grandchildren and all that. Um, and he's like, uh, scientists keep naming critters after me, but it's always the scary ones. I don't understand. I spend my free time cross-stitching and I sing lullabies to my basil plants. Aww. So they've named a snake in Peru, Pachyomenides Harrison Fordi. But he is, is vice chair of Conservation International. So maybe it's not such ah. a surprise. It's a really cool looking snake as well. Ah, okay. Because there was one of the Indiana Jones films. It was he didn't like. It was snakes he didn't like, wasn't it? Oh, is it? Is that a thing about Indiana Jones? It doesn't like snakes. Yeah, he's always in a snake pit, though, isn't he? Like getting out of trouble. Yeah, I think that might be why he doesn't like snakes. Because he had that adventure when he was a child. <laughs> I'm completely misremembering a lot of um, the Indiana Jones films now. <laughs> I'm sure there's at least one movie where he ends up in a snake pit. There, it, yeah. But I wonder if that's the link and someone just thought, I really like that scene, I really like Harrison Ford. Let us name it after him. But they didn't call it Indiana Jones, I. they called it Harrison, Harrison Ford. Yeah. But maybe they're not allowed because it's like owned by the movie studio or something. Uh, maybe. I think I'd quite like to have a species of something named after me. What do you think? Mammal? Fish? Bird? Beetle? <laughs> I really can't decide. I mean, you know I used to have pet rats and I do really like them. They're very cute. Oh, that would be cute. But I don't know what a new species of rat would be like, necessarily. Yeah, you could do, I'm sure you could do small shrew-like mammal. There'll be some rodent-y type thing discovered. I have no doubt we can name it after you. David Attenborough's got loads. Loads of rodents named after him, or just rodents. Or loads of species in general, <laughs> which I think is nice. You've got to wonder what scientists will be saying in like 100 or 200 years' time when they're reassessing what scientists today have done to find and classify new species and looked at the names and went, huh? Huh? Really? Why? But they did that recently. I'm sure they did. They renamed some because, oh, what happened? It was, oh yeah, dozens of birds in the US because they were named after like people that weren't very nice or people that were like slave owners and stuff because a lot of the people that found the birds in the first place were wealthy people of a time um so they decided that they would rename them because of their past that makes sense which i think is, is better yeah so i guess we could have eventually all the harrison ford eyes could be renamed something else yeah well i mean let's hope harrison ford doesn't do anything morally reprehensible thinking more the lines of future scientists saying this is just silly these names are weird and confusing can we just standardize them well i think usually it's not the whole name so it will belong to it will still indicate that it belongs to a certain class a certain genus but then, yeah, you can have a bit of fun and throw in Ford Eye at the end or 
David Attenborough or something like that. Well, something to look forward to, see if that's a trend that continues. <laughs> I feel like we should go back to dead animals now, having talked about new discoveries and celebrities. Um, mainly because dinosaurs are cool. Dinosaurs are so cool. So what can you tell me about discovery of more dinosaurs? You mentioned um, the one that was found on the Jurassic Coast recently. Are there more? Oh, there are loads more. The Yanni Smithi was discovered in Utah, and he is approximately 99 million years old. Uh, he lived during the mid-Cretaceous period, and they managed to find his skull, his spine, some teeth, and a little bit of his limbs. Uh, yeah, and that's the first discovery of that particular dinosaur species. Oh, is he a new species, or is he just a newly... I think he's a new species. I'm not sure now. Oh. See, I'm starting to wonder, if, if it is the only one they found, how can they be certain it is definitely a new species? and not just a slight mutation of a previously known species. Well, that's the thing. That's what's hard about it. That's where the, the DNI, the DNI, the DNA comes in to help you look. And obviously, like, similar species that you found before. Because lots of these places where they're found, especially dinosaurs, are, like, known fossil areas. It's like the same as the Jurassic Coast. So they will have other skulls from other species that they can compare them to. But then a lot of it comes down to, like, oh... The left tooth was three centimetres longer in this one than the left tooth of that one. So then it's longer. And you think, really? Really? Is that is that how it works? But it is more complicated than that, I'm sure. But yeah, morphological differences, differences in how it looks, and then DNA and, yeah, I guess time period as well. You can date these fossils quite accurately and see if it was likely that that sort of species were living at that time based on the size of its teeth or the way it moved or how big its legs were. Yeah, and I guess there has to be some consensus in the scientific community. Because if they find a new species, they publish it in a journal and that goes through a peer review process, right? Yes. So it's not just one scientist saying this. Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, also, it's hardly ever one person that discovers it, right? Like, these papers have multiple names on. This skull will get, well, not passed around, but looked at by multiple people. Often they take x-rays or CT scans of the fossils as well, which is always cool to see. And then you can really see like differences in this eye socket is much wider or much narrower or the snout is much longer or shorter or thicker. So, yeah, you can tell then. You can look at it much clearly, more clearly. There was one discovered, I'm trying to find it now, that had a fun hand, like a dinosaur hand, and they'd never seen like that kind of hand morphology before. Yeah, new species of theropod dinosaur discovered in Inner Mongolia. And it's of particular South importance. Complete hand, some ribs and part of a limb. 121 million years old. So a little bit older than the other one. And they, yeah. they've they got really detailed images of this one claw. You know in <laughs> Jurassic Park where they have that scene where they're like the claw comes down? This is like that one claw. And it, I mean, it looks incredible and it's all labelled. And that's all it took to figure out if it was a new species, just really detailed analysis of this one claw. I expect probably more than that, but that's what they stressed in the press release that I read, was that it was all about this unusual claw-like structure. I'll share the picture with you afterwards, but they have labelled every inch of this probably like 10 centimetre long claw. So they're really... They have gone full in, fully in detail. It's called Ming Mangjian Lei Yang, which is a mouthful. Yeah, is that named after someone that helped discover it, maybe? Or 
am I reading far too much into that? I thought it was going to be named after where they found it, because often that is quite common, but it hasn't said. They didn't say why they named it that. They just felt like it. <laughs> There's probably a reason, <laughs> I just don't know where it is. I think they, or they said, this is an initial classification and is tentative, and they plan to keep looking for more fossils so they can find where this new species fits into dinosaur taxonomy. So they aren't, they aren't 100% sure. Oh, okay. It's interesting that they put it out there if they're not necessarily 100% sure. But I think that actually makes a lot of sense because I guess you're only as sure as your data and the analysis that you can do. And if you, as you say, if you've not got that complete fossil record, can you really ever be sure? Can you really ever be sure? I guess not, yeah, <laughs> until you find... You might never find another species like that again, right? Or another claw or another tailbone. So, yeah, you can only work with the information you've got and the fossils you can see and look at. And are there instances of things being classified incorrectly, aren't there? Oh, yeah. Loads. There was one recently that was like, oh, we thought it was a plant, but it turned out it was a turtle. (laughs) Just a little bit different. (laughs) But (laughs) if all you're looking at is the fossilised remains, I can see how that would happen. It was a... I can see that a leaf skeleton would look a lot like an animal skeleton. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it, it just looks like a grey rock with some, like, indents in. And easily those indents could be, like, leaf parts. But no, it turns out that it is actually turtle shell, which is cute. But yeah, it does just look like a grey pebble, in all (laughs) honesty. I'm sorry, everyone. You could pick it up and not even know. It could be in your back garden. You could have held it in your hand. It could it could be in your back garden. Yeah, that's exactly the point. It could have been there, however many millions of years old, for that time. And you just toss it aside and you'd never know. I feel like this is turning into a conversation of what's easier, discovering extinct species from the rock record or discovering existing species that are running around the planet now. I still vote living species, I think, because I think at least then you've got all of history to look back on, right? So I feel like maybe that's easier. Yeah, and maybe things like behaviours to take into account. So there was, I heard about a golden mole that's recently been rediscovered, so we thought it was extinct, I guess? Yeah, I love this story, because A, golden mole, like, absolutely adorable, how could you resist? So this is really interesting. This is the Rewild, which is a conservation charity, the Search for Lost Species Project, and basically these species are all on this list of lost species because they haven't been seen in however many years. So this gorgeous golden mole, which is properly golden, it's so cute, hasn't been seen since 1936. And they basically have all these species on this list and they've set out to try and find them to see if they have gone extinct. Are they still there? What's going on? So they sent their team out to South Africa to find this golden mole and it swims through the sand. Wow. It's adorable. Uh, but this is interesting how they found it. To detect the mole, they used eDNA. So you might know that people obviously shed skin cells as they move about. So the same is true for animals. They shed skin cells, hair, bodily fluids. And so they tried to find these like pieces of eDNA within the sand. Okay, so they're... They're looking for mole dust. Oh, yes. <laughs> Golden, Golden mole, mole dust. dust. <laughs> and, but it's absolutely incredible because they found it. They found this. Uh, it's called De Winton's Golden Mole. And they said, extracting DNA from the soil is not without its challenges, but we've been honing our skills and refining our techniques. And we were fairly confident that if De Winton's Golden Mole was in the environment, we would be able to find it and sequence its DNA which is exactly what they've done a hundred soil samples later. Only a hundred? Well, apparently. (laughs) 
they must have had some way of refining that down to get to the DNA analysis. Because I was imagining they just do like loads of, it's effectively PCR reactions. I've got a thought, so. Yeah, because I can't, I can't imagine sequencing an entire genome is all that straightforward. No, it must be quite. Well, they've also found three other species within the same, well, not the same samples, but within the samples. So there's the Cape Golden Mole, Grant's Golden Mole, Van Zyl's Golden Mole, and then also the long-lost De Winton's Golden Mole. So the Golden Moles are thriving. <laughs> well, that's good to know, because you keep hearing about biodiversity loss and how that's a bad thing because it makes nature less resilient to change. Yes. So that's quite a good news story to know that some species are actually doing pretty well. I think it's nice. Like, it's still out there, and it has been out there clearly breeding, clearly surviving for the last, what, 1936? So 90 years odd, something like that, 80-something years. Yeah, just hiding away from all these people that might do terrible things to it. Yeah, that's so <laughs> cute. They found more as well. This is what I think is so extraordinary about this project. They found, you know, I was talking about how people, um, celebrities have animals named after them. Mm-hmm. So uh, David Attenborough, Attenborough's long-beaked echidna, same sort of situation, hasn't been seen in 60 years. Um, they sent out a team. Now, this really does sound terrific because it's out somewhere in the Cyclops Mountains of Indonesia, which is incredibly remote. And again, there's only one single museum specimen that was found in 1961. No one had ever taken a photograph of it. It was just known from this uh, one specimen. And they were in the forest for four weeks. Someone broke their arm in two places. Someone got uh, malaria. And someone else ended up with a leech inside their eye. Oh. But they found it. They found Atterborough's long beaked echidna just waddling about in the forest. As you do. I think someone's going to make a film about this. It's got all the elements there. <laughs> it so has, right? You've got to think they've got to send, you know, um, BBC Natural History Unit out on one of these expeditions and get this, you know, rediscover these lost species. It writes itself. Yeah, turn it into some sort of exciting action-adventure drama-y thing. Yeah, we spent four weeks trekking. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like like a David Attenborough show because they said they put all these camera traps up in this area where they thought it was and didn't find anything. And then the last memory card of the last camera, the last pictures, then they found it. It's It's such a story. That is, yeah, you can't write that. I mean... All I know about the echidna is, sadly enough, from Sonic the Hedgehog. I'm quite embarrassed to say that. I'm pretty sure that Laura. it's not. Laura! <laughs> I expected yeah. more from you. I'm pretty sure what they found wasn't a pink, slightly spiky thing with giant knuckles wandering around, or zooming around. Uh, I'll give you slightly spiky. It wasn't. It's not pink, it's sort of black, I guess. It's a black and white picture they've got of it, so it's like, yeah, grey-black. It is like it does have quite big hands. Ah. I don't know if it's quite knuckles off Sonic the Hedgehog uh, level, but they've got because they dig and they make burrows, so they do have like fairly big shovelly hands or feet, 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 hands, feet. I don't know. I'm pretty sure I say the dog as well that he's got hands. My rats definitely had hands in my head. Anyway. Oh yeah, your rats would have had hands because <laughs> they like hold food in front of their faces, don't they? Exactly. Stick them in your ear occasionally because. Groot was just really weird. What? So, so our rats were called Rocket and Groot, and yes. Groot just quite liked to do things like stick a nose in your ear and give it a sniff and then stick a paw in there. Just have a look, just see if you've got any snacks hiding up yeah. in there. 
pounce on your lips because that's not at all painful. <laughs> the problem is now, right, so the cat has got into this habit. If I've been eating something and she hasn't been involved, she'll come and sit right in front of my face and sniff my mouth to be like, <laughs> why were you eating crackers and not sharing? Why were you eating cheese and not paying the cheese tax? Like, she'll know. She'll look at me and be like, oh, you're eating popcorn. I don't like popcorn. That's fine. But if I've been eating something that she likes, she's she's cross. Oh. I have to share all my food. Do you have a habit of feeding her when you're eating? I very much try not to, except at breakfast she does have a little bit of toast because she likes oh, toast. Oh, well, there you go then. We have a hard, fast rule with our dog. He does not get anything but his own food when we're eating. And we do not interact with him until we've finished eating. That is very disciplined, and I applaud you for that. I'm too much of a soft touch, clearly. Oh, I'm trying to make life easier for myself. I don't want a dog pestering. No, it is, it is much better. <laughs> it's a much better habit to be in. Especially with a dog as well, that you would take to, like, social situations. Yeah. You know, like in the pub and stuff, you don't want them, like, bothering other people. Exactly. He's already pretty good at doing that without any more encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> I am really tempted to take Sparks to the pub one day. <laughs> I think like, I think she'd really enjoy it. She's quite social. Would you put her on a lead or just have her in a bag? Oh, I think I'd put her on a lead. But she really doesn't like dogs, so that's why we haven't taken her, because I think Sparks in the pub on a lead with the dogs, she'd, she'd panic. But if she was on the lead in the pub by herself just with other people, she'd be absolutely fine, especially if they were feeding her crackers. Anyway, I feel like we stopped talking about um, discovering new species and just talking about species that exist in our houses. <laughs> <laughs> The new species in your back garden. We've come full circle. <laughs> That's fair point. We've gone a lot of way around the world, it's actually. We have. We've been everywhere. <laughs> we've been Jurassic Coast. We've been Utah. We've been Indonesian islands. Yeah, we've talked about finding new species in the fossil record, species that are still living, a few more dinosaurs, which are always cool. And we've talked about rediscovering species we thought were lost. So pretty comprehensive. You think so? Yeah. So on that note, uh, I guess I will say this is our final episode of the year. Oh my goodness me. We're breaking for Christmas soon, which will be something to look forward to. Happy holidays, everybody listening. Yeah. Hope you're having a lovely Christmas yes. time. Yes, and Christmas is, of course, the time for giving. And we do have our coffee fund, which we rarely talk about. So if you do have some uh, few spare pennies left over from Christmas, feel free to stick it in our coffee fund and buy us a tea or a beer. It helps support the podcast. It pays for our annual platform fees, which renew every single year. And it makes us happy. Yes, please do share if you have any little spare change coming our way we would really appreciate it and that means we get to keep making podcasts all about things that we enjoy also if you've got any suggestions of things we should make podcasts on please let us know find us on social media and i guess we'll see you in 2024 yeah and i think i would also say if you can't afford to give us any money it would be really helpful if you would tell a friend or tell a colleague about this amazing podcast you've listened to and give the gift of the podcast to someone else which also helps us out because it means more people listen ah uh, see the perfect gift you never knew you needed a new podcast to listen to <laughs> So yeah, give well this Christmas and as Ellie says, we will see you with some brand new exciting episodes in 2024. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.